That's not fair. One of the favorite complaints of children everywhere, that's not fair. I heard this from my own children when they were growing up. Uh, Who got the best swing on the playground? Who got the red popsicle instead of the purple one? Who got to stay up 10 minutes later reading with mom? That's not fair. I remember when I was seven years old, my older brother got a new pair of Nikes when Nikes were just becoming a thing. They were white shoes with a red swoosh, the pair that I wanted. And I told my mom, that's not fair. We have a developed sense of fairness and justice at a very early age, and we kind of carry this out throughout all life. I kind of imagine, or I'd love to imagine, a reality TV show where instead of adult judges, we have a courtroom with children judges hearing real cases. I bet it would be awesome. Like, they would arrive at pretty good decisions of justice and fairness. It's not uncommon for parents interacting with their children, hearing the complaint of unfairness, to sometimes lose their patience, and they will respond with the soul-crushing response of, life's not fair, kid. (laughs) Get used to it, right? I remember being told this once, not the incident with the red Nike swoosh, but a different time, and I was thinking, Who's in charge of all this then? Like, who do I appeal to? Are adults running this? You know, and if you are, why do you consent to live in an unfair world? That's dumb. Fix it. That's not fair. There was a trend, a meme on social media several years ago, uh, various images accompanied by the phrase, explain it to me like I'm five. This can be used earnestly when you're seeing complex ideas and you really just want a simple answer. Explain it to me like I'm five. But it can also be used deliciously, sarcastically to critique something that's unnecessarily complex but produces bad outcomes. For example, tax loopholes for super, super wealthy people. Explain it to me like I'm five. Somebody, anybody. And the idea here is if you get the explanation back, a five-year-old would say, that's not fair. That's dumb, (laughs) whatever, something. Uh, You see, Timmy, rich people, really, really rich people who make $100 million a year or more pay less in taxes, a lower marginal tax rate, because that's how the tax system works. And Timmy says, that's not fair. That's dumb. Fix it. We all have an innate sense of fairness. And I imagine if we got into small groups in our room here and and I asked you to tell each other what's unfair that you see in our world, we'd have some lively chatter happening this morning. It would be a buzz, right? Perhaps we'd talk about the good old Iowa legislature. Perhaps we would talk about some of the upcoming World Cup games that have a 2 a.m. kickoff time. (laughs) That's not fair. The games are happening in Australia and New Zealand. That's why they are at 2 a.m. Okay. But the USA group stage games, by the way, are all at a reasonable hour starting this Friday night, 8 p.m., USA. There we go. I got to sneak it in there. I just got, it's just, it just comes out of me. I don't know. The question for us this morning is, what does God and faith have to say to our innate sense of fairness and justice? Children try to appeal to their parents to intervene and bring forth justice and fairness. 
What happens when we likewise appeal to God, telling God that's not fair? How does God respond to our appeals? Does God agree with our judgment about what is fair or not? And if God agrees, what then? What does God do? We're going to look at an ancient story from the Bible in which one person appeals to God for justice and tells God, that's not fair. And the story comes to us from the life of Abraham. His story is in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And we're going to look at a story in which Abraham is visited by three men whom we later learn are embodiments of God. They are somehow, in some way, representatives of God. So God, so excuse me, Abraham is hosting God for dinner. Okay, now, before we go to the story, I have to unfortunately address a very bad, abusive use of some of the events around this story. Okay, so the story we're going to look at is a precursor to the destruction story of Sodom and Gomorrah. That story has been used to condemn gay people throughout Christian history. And Sodom and Gomorrah, however, is not at all about being gay. It is about violence, the perpetuated violence within the city. So the word we're going to see in our story today is the word wicked, applied to the city and the inhabitants there. And when that word is used, it is used exclusively of the violence that the inhabitants engage in. It has nothing to do with sexual orientation. Okay? So I just want to address that very explicitly before we go to the story. So Abraham shares a meal with three visitors whom represent God. We're going to pick up the story from there. Then the men set out from there, and they looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, sorry, hang on. Do I have it up? It's up, good. Okay, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. No, for I have chosen him, that he may charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring about for Abraham what the Lord has promised him. All right, let's pause and marvel at this gem of a scripture. Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? <laughs> okay, this is a view, a sneak peek into God's interiority. Okay, God is talking to God's self. You ever been in the kitchen and you're mumbling about where you put the garlic powder? Okay, this is God's version. <laughs> and and. God is uh, sorting out a problem here in his interior self-talk. The problem is, should I tell something to Abraham or entrust Abraham with the deets, the details on what God's about to do? 
And God decides, in fact, no, I'm not going to hide it. I am, in fact, going to bring Abraham into what I'm about to do. The reason God says this is because God wants to train Abraham in the ways of righteousness and justice. God is discipling Abraham, helping Abraham understand a lesson about justice. So here's a snapshot of the lineage of what we're going to see happen throughout the book of Genesis. Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. The idea here in God's logic, God's self-talk, is if I get a justice lesson in right up here, right at Abraham, that lesson will be transmitted throughout the generations and ultimately come to define the people of Israel. Now, two things about this. First of all, again, let me publicly lament, as I often do, the Christian rejection of justice as a concern throughout Christian history. The Christian history has so often preferred to choose a spiritual core set of messages, and justice is over here. It's a peripheral issue. It's a side concern. You know, first is the spiritual, second is the justice. Uh, No, uh uh-uh, nada. That is not the approach of any Bible writer, of anyone we see in the Bible. Right here we see it early on in Genesis. We see it throughout the Bible. Justice is a core, core concern of the spiritual life of what God wants. And second, I had a second there. I don't know what it was, but it's related to that. Anyway, so God wants the nation of Israel to practice justice. Oh, it's this, that the nation of Israel fails spectacularly (laughs) at this lesson of justice. And we see story after story in the Bible of people failing spectacularly justice. Sadly, that continues with all of the quote-unquote people of God failing at justice. It's a common, common story. Okay, so Abraham getting about to get schooled in the ways of justice. Let's keep going. Then the Lord said, how great is the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah and how very grave their sin." I must go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. (laughs) Oh, God's great. I mean, I will know. Okay, it's a great detail. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. This is fascinating. Two of the three visitors walk on towards Sodom, one of the men remains with Abraham, and somehow they still embody the divine. It's, it's complex, but wonderful. So Abraham's standing with God. Then Abraham came near and said, will you indeed consume the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then consume the place and not forgive it? For the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked? Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 
50 righteous in this city. I will forgive the whole place for their sake. So here's our moment. Abraham essentially telling God, that's not fair. If you consume the whole city, what if there are 50 righteous? You're just going to sweep them away in the judgment. How's that fair? And he calls out God. Aren't you supposed to be a just judge? What's up, God? What are you doing? That's not going to be fair to the righteous people. A lot of Jewish commentators will point out just how different of a response Abraham has from Abraham's ancestor, Noah. If you remember in the flood story, Noah, God comes to Noah and says, Hey, Noah, I'm going to flood the whole earth. And what does Noah say? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing at all. He builds a boat for his own family. (laughs) Does not utter a word about his neighbor, Phil, who seems like a nice guy. Always brings back the tools I lend him. I mean, what about Phil, God? I mean, or what about the hundreds of millions of animals? Yes, God's concerned about the animals too, as we learn later on, right after the flood narrative. But Noah utters no word at all, just builds a boat, saves his family. (laughs) Here's Abraham, however, arguing with God. Listen, that's not fair. And then we see Moses do the same thing on a couple different occasions when God's ready to just to like kind of do a lot of judgment. And Moses is like, "Uh, don't do that. And God's like, okay, cool, you're right. So here's Abraham showing a real concern for what is fair. And God says, you're right. There's 50 righteous people. I'll forgive the whole city, all of its violence for their sake. This sounds pretty cool at first glance. Like, okay, God's listening. Nice. But it doesn't actually resolve the problem of fairness and justice. The problem is set up in a way that God's judgment is going to come on the whole city. So all the inhabitants are going to share whatever fate befalls the city. So what that means, though, is that either the righteous are going to get what the wicked deserve or the wicked are going to get what the righteous receive. Let me put it to you as a quiz. Which is better? A, the righteous unfairly share the same destructive fate as the wicked, or B, the wicked unfairly share the same benevolent fate as the righteous. Right? You see the problem? It's very difficult to distribute justice in a fair way to a large mixed group. All the teachers in the room are like, yes. (laughs) We know this every hour. Abraham's picking B. Abraham's like, he's picking B. He's like, that's That's what I'm going to pick. I want mercy. That's more fair, more just somehow. But we see this problem in our world today all over the place. You know, should, for example, the citizens of Iran suffer economic sanctions imposed by the U.S. and other countries because Iran's government has decided to continue its enriched uranium program in pursuit of nuclear weapons? 
everyday citizens in Iran find it difficult to get medical supplies and other goods. Is this fair? Should Russian citizens be punished for Russia's invasion of Ukraine? What about the U.S.'s own history of perpetuated injustice and violence? Should you and I share in the judgment? Who's responsible? What is fairness? What is justice? These are very complex issues, and it's not clear all the time what is fair, what is not fair, but it's exactly the kind of discourse that God is inviting Abraham to engage in, in this conversation. And it continues, Abraham answered, let me take it upon myself to speak to my Lord, I am him who but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And the Lord said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. God's good at math. (laughs) Again, he spoke to him, suppose 40 are found there. The Lord answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, do not let my Lord be angry if I speak. (laughs) Suppose 30 are found there. The Lord answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, let me take it upon myself to speak to my Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. The Lord answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, do not let my Lord be angry if I speak just once more. Suppose 10 are found there. The Lord answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went their way when they had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Oh, chef's kiss. So good. So good. It's astonishing. Abraham and God haggling over fairness and justice as human lives hang in the balance. And what we see from God is amazing. God is open, even eager to negotiate. It's like God views Abraham as an equal partner in justice, an equal-footed judge. Together, you and me, Abraham, we're going to figure this out together. Every time Abraham tries that humble rhetorical approach, God doesn't acknowledge it at all. It's almost as if God, if God were to acknowledge that sort of lowly position that Abraham's trying to occupy, it would somehow reinforce it. So God just ignores it. I think in part because God really is trying to establish almost an equal footing with Abraham. Remember, too, that God is presented to Abraham as some guy. There's two guys taking a walk, arguing, philosophizing about fairness and justice. And we see Abraham successfully Get God to agree that destroying two, or excuse me, destroying 10 righteous people 
along the city, that would be too much. That would be unfair. Now, why stop there, you might ask? Let's see how far we can go, right? You can find all kinds of commentaries on this, uh, and I, I buzzed through a dozen or so on why Abraham stops at 10. Really fun to read. I can't summarize it all. I don't have time. So you could check that out. Or, and you may also go to God yourself and deliberate just that point. That is what this story invites. It invites us to go to God and say, that's not fair. And when God responds, we get to respond back. God is eager to hear us, eager to understand our own perspective on justice and fairness. God trusts us. God trusts our perspective on what is fair and just in the world. Our scripture is filled with models of people arguing with God, arbitrating justice with God, telling God what they think and feel. Let me just give you a few examples here. Here's Jeremiah. Let me put my case to you, O God. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Truly, you are to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail. <laughs> Woo! Jeremiah is calling God a liar. <laughs> you deceive me, God. And this is not fair. It's not just. Here's Job. Why do sinful people keep on living? They grow. The older they grow, the richer they get. They see their children grow up around them. They watch their family grow larger. Their homes are safe. They don't have to be afraid. God isn't punishing them. It's not fair. And finally, Psalm 73 I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They don't have any troubles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They don't have the problems most people have. They don't suffer as other people do. They don't have a care in the world. They keep getting richer and richer. They brag as if they own heaven itself. They talk as if they control the earth. So people listen to them. <laughs> oh, modern U.S. politics in a nutshell. Psalm 73. It's not fair. Ugh. But this is our tradition. This is our invitation to take up this same dialogue. We are invited to go to God and tell God it's not fair. And we see what God says back. What will God tell us? We don't know. Not unless we tell God what we are feeling and thinking. God trusts us. God wants to know what we think and feel. I do this frequently, <laughs> daily, multiple times a day. I have to. I find that I'm a better human being when I do this kind of dialogue with God. If I bring all of my mm, anger and grief over the unfairness of the world, if I bring that into other aspects of my life, I find it doesn't work so great. Like if I channel that energy into my parenting, <laughs> I'm not the best parent. So I bring it to God. And God is like, I hear you. I wish that were different too. 
what are you going to do about that? What do you want to do? I don't know how the whole God intervening to fix stuff works. None of us do. We would hope that God would just fix it sometimes, bring about justice. Or do we? It's complex. It's messy. We don't know what that would look like. We do know and we can have confidence in, though, that God is listening, wants to know, and we are better off when we are honest to God in prayer like this. So I want to give us a chance to simply practice that individually, quietly. (laughs) Um, If you want to talk with others about injustice, I invite you to do so. But now we'll just take a moment quietly in prayer. So as you're able, get comfortable in your chair and we'll try this out. God, as you visited Abraham, we invite your visitation to us, even now. We know you're always with us, O oh God, but help us even now to be attuned to your presence. And we ask you to help us even now just to take a moment to share with you what we see in our world that is not fair, that is not just. Help us to give voice to that now. Just as you heard Abraham, O God, we know you hear us. Would you continue to help us, give us courage to name with you the places that are unfair and give us courage to be part of the solutions to injustice in our world, to embody your ways of justice and fairness in every aspect of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.